MSW Media. So, Renato, eight of the fake electors in the Fulton County case have accepted immunity. Does that mean that they're flipping on Trump? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, I feel like, you know, we're doing this grand tour of different places in the U.S. with our discussions every week, and it's really hard to keep up with everything that's going on. But one big development that happened in the Fulton County case, which has sort of, um, I won't say it's been dormant because obviously it's, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes, but we haven't really been engaged with it for for a little while. But one thing that came out was that eight of the 16 fake electors who are in Fannie Willis's crosshairs have accepted immunity. And I think I want to know, and our listeners want to know what that means in terms of the strength of her case and what she's going to be able to glean from them. Sure. So what, well, a couple things before, before I even answer those questions is, I mean, I do think this helps us understand why things have slowed down. Like there's a lot of grumbling online about this investigation. You know, she said the indictments were imminent. This isn't imminent. Uh, what's going on? And I think, this is a bit of a cluster, okay? The the reason that um, we know that these uh, fake electors have received immunity is because of a filing from a joint lawyer for many of them who posted essentially, um, you know, filed in, in defense of her remaining in the case. Uh, Fannie Willis is trying to get that attorney disqualified. And so, you know, the fact that these electors, fake electors have received immunity, I think is interesting. Uh, what it does mean is, first of all, Willis is is secured their testimony. Now, are they flipping against Trump? Well, you know, we use the term flipping. What you usually think of as fl flipping, right, is, you know, the getaway driver, you know, points the fingers like that. That's the guy who robbed the bank or, you know, the the mob boss is fingered by his consigliere who's, you know, under witness protection uh, before he slits his wrist to the bathtub or whatever. Um you know, that's what we think of this. It's not quite that grand um, here. I, I suspect a lot of these people are going to say, yes, I will. You know, my, that's my name. I was listed. Uh, no, I wasn't actually an elector, um, you know, you know, and they would acknowledge that and they'd acknowledge that the statements in a particular document were false. But I don't think any of those people, you know, know Donald Trump necessarily or have spoken to him, but they're going to provide testimony that would be. I think, um, useful and it would move the ball forward for Fonnie Willis in a prosecution. So can we just rewind and maybe review where these fake electors fit into the Fulton County case and in the broader January 6th scheme generally? Because, you know, I think January 6th was a pretty complicated conspiracy, and coup attempt. Um, there was a, there were a lot of moving parts, right? And so, just to rewind, 
Um, we know about Trump's perfect phone call to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where he was asking him to find 11,000, what is it, 780 votes, 870 votes, something like that. Uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. Um, exactly one more than, than he would need to, to beat Joe Biden in that state. You know, that's sort of been the central uh, event. Um, however, at the same time, you had people like Rudy Giuliani and his Kraken team who were meeting with legislators and also pushing this idea of um, election fraud to them. And then the upshot of all of this is that the goal on January 6th was that Mike Pence would reject the slates of electors, which had been presented from states where the, the vote outcome was, you know, ostensibly disputed and accept an alternate slate of electors. This was part of, I think, the Eastman plan. And so these fake electors, that's where they come into the picture, that they are people who submitted this alternate slate we, we ostensibly to be presented uh, during the vote count. Is that is that right? I mean, that, that's that's the gist of it. I would say uh, the way I would look at it is a starting point. So there's a lot of, of one thing I'll just say is that uh, D.A. Willis can charge a number of different crimes, like a whole panoply of different crimes uh, potentially related to this January 6th matter. And we don't know exactly what the charges are going to look like. Um, but one thing I'll say is somebody who has charged a lot of white collar cases is that often or usually the starting point for somebody who's, you know, if you're investigating a white collar case, what you're really looking for is at a starting point is the false statement. Why are you looking for false statements? Well, if you can prove uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant made a knowing false, knowingly made a false statement, that gets you like 70% of the way there. Because often what you're trying to prove is fraud or some derivative of fraud, something related to fraud. And fraud is essentially li you know, lying to people to get their money or lying to people to get something of value. So um, here, whether you're talking about election fraud or you know some sort of derivative thereof, some sort of conspiracy or RICO or whatever she's going to charge, those fake elector uh, certificates are interesting or important to a prosecutor because they, first of all, sometimes they contain very technically false statements. In other words, one defense. So what one defense that a defendant you could 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 uh, mount here is that you know so there's a statement in there. And that sense, she says, here's all these people, uh, you know, here's a list of people, and they were sort of truly and duly elected, whatever, right? They were truly, you know, duly selected as electors for the state of Georgia. So that's that's the most obvious sort of false statement. But, you know, there you 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 have the defenses where you could say, well, you know, we thought that they were elected, and, you know, you get down to the whole sort of vote counting thing. But then there's actually further problems because, in at least in, in most states, I'm not sure if it's Georgia, but in many of these states, 
the people that they put down as the electors were not the exact same people who actually were on the ballot as the Republican electors in that state. Maybe because certain people are like, yeah, no, I'm not going along with this or whatever. And so those they're false, like just in a more straightforward way. In other words, even if you accept the, the fact that the Republican you know, slate of electors were selected in a particular state. Jane Doe was not one of those people. And so they're false for that reason. The, 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 the challenge with those is that you have to prove that the, the a couple of things. One, you have to prove that the person who is trying to get that uh, submitted knew it was false. And you, ha- and you have to prove that the, the particular defendant that you have charged here caused those false statements to be submitted to someone else. You know, in the, in the Manhattan case, there's this question of like, if you, if you have a false statement and just sits in the books and records, the Trump organization, is it really, if you just put it in your file cabinet, is it still a crime? Uh, Maybe in New York, but generally speaking, like you, you usually have to transmit it to somebody else. But here, of course, the elect, the fake electors were intended to be transmitted to someone else. Right. And so, that is that is sort of the core of this fake elector piece of this. And I think it's why the testimony of the individual electors is important to, to show falsity, to show that they knew it was false and potentially regarding statements that were made to them about the creation of those documents. And the fact that they were offered immunity and they took it means that they clearly believe that they otherwise had potential criminal liability individually. Is that right? And does this kind of immunity give them essentially blanket protection from being prosecuted? So there's no way that they can take the fifth in order if they're called to testify. Yeah. So as to the latter question, I would expect, yes, at least as to anything that's known by prosecutors. In other words, when you do immunity deals, you can't like have a pinky swear thing where you don't tell them that you actually are, you know, you know, whatever, you know, uh, you, you've got a bunch of people in your basement who you've trapped there and you, uh, you haven't let anyone know. Um, and this is your secret, your secret deal to, to get immunity for that too. Um, you have to tell the truth. Usually if you lie, um, on, you know, if you lie to under oath or to the prosecutors, that could be a problem, but yeah, generally speaking, that is the case. I wouldn't read too much into people thinking they had liability. In other words, you know, hey, the title of this podcast is it's complicated, right? So if I'm representing some person who's accused of being a fake elector, I would just be like, we're taking the fifth. Like we don't have no, we're, we're not taking any chances here. Uh, do I think the chances that, you know, Jane Doe is going to get actually prosecuted thrown in prison are high? No, but why are we going to take any chance of that? Uh, you, you give me immunity and then Jane Doe will say whatever. I mean, it may actually be, their belief that they have very little actual liability, like, Hey, I just showed up. Um, but, um, you know, getting the, getting immunity I think is good because ultimately at the end of the day, they're testifying on team government. So it's going to be helpful to the prosecutors. Um, and the fact that they get immunity, I think the jurors are going to draw the implication you did. Asha, which is like, Hey, these people all got immunity and no one in the jury is going to question why, Jane Doe fake fake elector got immunity when Donald Trump didn't because they're just a pawn, right? So everyone understands that. Based on what you just said, also it seems like Fonnie Willis doesn't have much to lose necessarily um, by granting immunity to these people. It's not like she's letting some big fish 
go. Right. These are like the drug couriers and a drug conspiracy. It's like, okay, someone's girlfriend, you know, brought drugs from one, you know, house to the other, right? Are you going to really prosecute her for that? Um, some people do, and that's, they can often be, generate very unjust results, but like you're, you can just let those people go. The, the important thing is to get the big fish. And so I think uh, it, that's something that, 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 that concept that I talk about is, you know, of how it's going to be perceived to a jury is something that prosecutors think about. In other words, if you give, like, you know, if you're giving immunity to a CFO of a company and you're prosecuting the CEO, jurors might be like, well, how the hell did this guy get immunity? He was a big part of the, of the crime. And I did have a case I took over where the prior prosecutor did give the CFO immunity. And I was like, I've had, I put that person up on the stand. It was an issue that I had to deal with. It's like, is the jury going to be like, hey, why did this guy get immunity? But th- but that's not going to be the case for some fake elector. Like they're not, I mean, they're clearly not some king, king, linchpin of the scheme, right? So then what case is she building? So you just said the fake electors, and I agree with you, didn't have direct contact with Trump or, you know, like in other words, Trump wasn't like, you're going to submit the, the fake slate. And like, he didn't like lay it all out like a Scooby-Doo movie. And they're like, yes, we will do that. And um, so- Given that there's this distance, and and even if they are able to test, like who? I guess my question is, who does she? Who is the big fish, and how does she get there with this testimony? Um, what what do you think is the theory of the case that she's building, and against whom? I, I really think that she, I mean I think she's building a case against Trump. I mean she's all but indicated that, and certainly we have that. Um, that uh, not so subtle uh, grand jury four 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 person who is uh, you know she also didn't play her cards very close to the vest. So I think we know that there's, she's building a case against Trump. I, I you know there's been enough smoke that's been that's been blown about Rico or conspiracy to make me think that it's going to be some sort of wide ranging case. That's probably not what I would have done, but I understand why she may be doing that. And, and I think that this is an important piece of it because it's very it's very it's very solid and what i mean by that is uh, you there's all these conversations for example where trump is pressuring somebody to to do one thing or another whether it's raffisberger or this uh, former speaker of the house who's now passed away there's recordings of trump talking to to him trying to get the you know him to overturn the election you, you could imagine jurors having a different a difference of opinion regarding trump's intent but I think with something like this, you have something very tangible where it's like these, this is something false and you could prove that it's false. You're going to have people get up and swear that, you know, yes, this this document is not true. And I was part of this. I think it's a, a, a useful piece of of what of a potential crime that she's trying to prove related to election fraud, because she's just going to say this is an attempt to, def- you know, to change the outcome by via fraud because these statements are ultimately fraudulent. So I, I actually always thought that the fake elector piece of this was the strongest part of a January 6th type of charge. I think that's the case federally as well, because just, you know, uh, this also kind of hooks into a, ja- a Jack Smith sort of investigation, because at the end of the day, those electoral fa- electoral certificates were set to be presented to the United States Senate. And so, of course, they are false statements in connection with the federal proceeding, and those are crimes. And so I, I think that the, the fake elector evidence is useful. Now, we've seen, I think, public statements that 
there's some really amazing communications in other states like Arizona where they're like talking over emails about 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 you know how false this stuff is and some of the so the some of the evidence in other states may be better but Fonnie Willis has to really focus on the, on the state of Georgia. One thing I do want to say and I do want to mention here is the fact that a lot of these lectures are represented by the same person is like really really unusual. And if this is like a common issue in criminal cases is that so typically speaking it's a real pro, it's really problematic to represent multiple defendants, let's say, in a, in a criminal case that, you know, people I've had defense attorneys and I was prosecutor try to do that. Um, I would always try to put pressure on them on that and talk about the potential conflict. I would rarely try to disqualify them, which is what she did. It's not uncommon though, for uh, an attorney to represent multiple witnesses in the same case. In fact, that is often efficient. So let's say I represent a company I mean, this is this is my real life practice. Like, I'll represent a company, and then I will refer the employees to a, a friend in another firm who I, you know, some other lawyer. Let's say a former colleague of mine when I was a prosecutor, who will represent uh, the employees, and they'll have because they need to have their own attorney, and he'll represent all of them, or she'll represent all of the employees because the employees aren't conflicted against each other, not like they're pointing the finger at each other, but they need somebody else who's not the company's lawyer to give them advice about whatever their situation is. Um, but here, what's interesting is the electors are getting deals and have potential liability. And so Fonnie Willis is like, these people all have culpability. And 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 she's also pointed to false statements allegedly made by this attorney to the court. So definitely interesting, and but it could be problematic for Willis because in the if if there are issues with the representation, these people could potentially try to get out of the deals later, and so she really actually needs to make sure this is cleaned up, um, and the representation is clean before she moves forward, which is why uh, imminent is not so imminent. Well, we know that her window is between July and September to bring charges, so we will stay tuned. Indeed. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Asha, we did have a very significant trial this week. It's interesting because I don't know if it got the attention it deserved, but it was a pretty landmark case for the Justice Department. Yes. So this was the conviction of several members of the Proud Boys, including its leader, Enrique Tarrio, for seditious conspiracy last week. And maybe it didn't get quite the attention it deserved because we had already had a conviction uh, in the separate trial of members of the Oath Keepers um, where uh, they were convicted of seditious conspiracy, including their leader, Stuart Rhodes. Um, and so maybe it felt like, ho-hum, yeah, obviously they were engaging in a seditious conspiracy. But, you know, look, this was... Um, this was actually a pretty big milestone for the Justice Department. 
um, for, for a couple of reasons, which is, number one, seditious conspiracy is a charge that is rarely brought, period. Um, it's, it's a political crime, right? I refer to it as treason's cousin. I mean, it's sort of as close as you can get to treason. So there's a stigma attached to it. You are, you betrayed the state, you know, you are an enemy of the state. The victim is the government. And so to, to charge someone with this, um, I think is a very high bar because you want to be clear that you're going after someone who has really tried to um, plot violence against the government and not just because, you know, you don't like this particular group or something like that. Um, and, you know, th so there's very little case law on seditious conspiracy. Um, and it, it has run into problems in the past. Now, it's been successfully used uh, in the case of the, the so-called blind sheik um, who was behind the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. He was charged with seditious conspiracy. He actually appealed uh, his conviction, uh, claiming that that violated his First Amendment rights. He claimed that, you know, he was just engaging in religious speech and the Second Circuit rejected that. Um, seditious conspiracy has also been used against Puerto Rican nationalists in the past who, and this is way before our time really, but like, you know, who engaged in um, terrorist acts, uh, people who were, you know, um, claiming that they were fighting on behalf of Puerto Rican independence. But what's different here is that these were domestic right-wing extremists. And this is an arena where the Justice Department has traditionally not been successful. Um, there was a case brought in 1980 uh, against eight, eight white nationalists um, in a case uh, from Fort Smith, and th they were all acquitted. Um, in 2010, the uh, Eastern District of, I think Eastern District of Michigan, tried to charge the Hutari Christian nationalist group with seditious conspiracy, um, and that those charges were thrown out. So it's kind of a big deal. This is this is a good notch in the Justice Department's belt and a good precedent to set for how we are beginning to address right-wing extremism. Yeah, it's certainly very significant prosecution. I, I will say if you asked me a few years ago whether I thought that there would be, char you know, seditious conspiracy charges that would be broad and proven um, against white nationalist groups in connection with the attack on the Capitol, I would have been very skeptical of that. If not, I'm sure that comes as no surprise to our listeners. I'm skeptical of a lot of things, but it's with good reason in this case, right? It's If you look at that history that you just laid out, it's it's it would have been hard to be optimistic about that. So it says something, I think, both about the Justice Department's effort here, which is significant, uh, but also about the, the strength of the evidence, um, which was very, very substantial in this, in this case. I mean, there were some not guilty verdicts, which by the way, was actually, I think a good thing for the government. It, the jury was very careful and really carefully considered each defendant in each count, but they, they essentially had got all the convictions that they needed, uh, more or less across the board. They got conspiracy convictions, which are enough, right? Even for the one defendant who didn't get, uh, didn't get uh, the full vote. Um, but you know, I do think one, one thing that's important for people to note, Asha, is the, what you have to prove in a 
seditious conspiracy case because this is, you know, people I think had this sense, like if you asked folks online or at a, at a rally or a meeting, well, um, you know, is Trump going to get charged with seditious conspiracy? They'd be like, yes, him and Giuliani and all, everybody is. But, but it's a little more complicated, right, in terms of what the government needs to prove. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. So seditious conspiracy is an agreement to use force to resist the authority of the United States. Um, you know, there's there's a, a bunch of different ways that you can do this, but that's the gist of the statute. And I think this idea of an agreement to use force is really at the core of it. Um, and maybe you can talk about how this compares with conspiracy generally, but I think the limited, you know, jurisprudence on this really holds that conspiracy to a high bar. So that Hutari case that I mentioned before from Michigan, that involved a case where um, these Christian nationalists were plotting to kill law enforcement um, in an attempt to get a federal law enforcement and to get a federal, to get a law enforcement response. Um, and then the second part was that during the funeral parade, then they would be able to kill more law enforcement. And the idea was that they were trying to lure the federal government into basically a civil war. And essentially, essentially the court was like, that's a too fanciful, um, it's not really, it, it wasn't a specific enough plot. Um, second of all, yeah, they wanted to kill law enforcement, but this has to be against the government of the United States. And third, the, yes, the, this leader was talking about it, but not everybody was clearly in agreement and completely on board with this plan. In other words, there, there was just too many holes from the judge's point of view. I kind of disagree based on the evidence that, that was in that case, but, um, to your point, Rudy Giuliani, I mean, well, I don't know about Rudy Giuliani. He, he may have been more in contact with these people. But as you mentioned, like similar to the fake electors, you know, Trump really keeps himself at an arm's length from a lot of things. And people who have been like, you know, Trump is going to get convicted of seditious conspiracy. Like, I think unless there is some smoking gun where he knew, was in contact with, was involved with the plot to use violence that day. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to show that he had an agreement to use violence, not just to have people there. In other words, so this would be a distinction. You, you, you asked me to compare it to other conspiracies, right? You could imagine, let me give you a couple other conspiracies. One, one of the conspiracies that I think was uh, the defendants were charged with in the same case was obstructing of an official proceeding, right? There was a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Well, what was going on in the Senate was an official proceeding. You know, all you really need to do is show that there's an agreement to have people go in there and try to disrupt what they were doing. Well, that's, you don't need to have, the, they have force, right? A sit-in can be, uh, can be uh, disruptive. Um, you know, if you had a group of people decide, hey, we're going to sit, sit down in the middle of the Senate floor or something like that, or shout during, you know, shout to try to, uh, you know, drown out the, the votes and the conversation that that might be enough. Um, and, and so, you know, that's all that might be required in that case. You could also imagine, you know, we talked a moment ago about fake electors, right? You could imagine a, a, a conspiracy to pr present false statements, right? To the United States Congress, right? Or 
something along those lines, or a conspiracy to defraud the United States that was fa- that was focused on, you know, false statements that were going to be presented to the United States Senate, or something along, or something where, you know, or a conspiracy to defeat the lawful functions of the United States, which is very similar to um, the obstruction of official proceeding, where you're trying to prevent the the peaceful transfer of power, but not necessarily through violence. I think the sort of evidence that you saw in the Proud Boys case were, you know, these signal chats where they're like talking about weapons and coordinating like a like they're a military force, which I, I, they were a sort of paramilitary force. Like you said, unless Trump is sort of in there in their signal chats or, you know, having uh, coordination and planning meetings regarding, you know, procurement of weapons or something, that's a very challenging charge to put on to put on him. So I, I agree. I would not expect anything like that, but there's a panoply of charges out there. And I think we'll have to see what happens. I mean, it's, it's clear that Jack Smith is very aggressively investigating um, Jan- January 6th matters, but the sort of stuff he's investigating based on what we know is like Pence, you know, and, and testimony of Pence is going to be related to, you know, pressure put on Pence by Trump to try to not do the right thing on January 6th and try to turn the, you know, accept fake electors or send it back to the states or something along those lines. And Eastman's similar. Eastman's plot, you know, any attempt to try to get at, you know, the testimony of Eastman or something like that is all going to be focused on this fake elector scheme. So it's a very different piece of it than the people who are, you know, getting weapons and trying to, you know, uh, assault attack, uh, you know, Capitol Police that day. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding or even conspiracy to defraud the United States, which are bad. Uh, you don't want to do that if you're the president of the United States, may not feel like it carries the, it, or fully encompasses the harm and horror that kind of took place on January 6th. Um, but as you said, you know, it's, they would have to focus on what Trump's conduct was. I think the, perhaps the the most extreme that you could really go towards kind of treasonous behavior on Trump that might be actually chargeable, and you and I have discussed this and we can save this for a future um, episode, is is insurrection and rebellion, which is about inciting people to resist the authority of the United States or to prevent the execution of a law. Um, That has a bunch of, you know, First Amendment issues potentially. Um, But I think it kind of, it more closely gets to, if anything, you know, how Trump participated in the violence that day. I agree with that. And like you said, we've talked about that. I I think that, you know, more broadly though, I think one thing that this points to is, and to go to a theme that, you know, I'm sure we've talked about in the past. Certainly I have. I wrote a column, I remember, during the first impeachment of Trump when, uh, the Ukrainish, the, 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 there was the, him, his bullying and attempts to try to uh, uh, get Ukraine to, to dig up dirt on Hunter Biden. You know, I, I, I wrote a column at that time in Politico basically saying this isn't extortion or bribery in any comment, you know, in any sense we understand it. It's really bad, but it's not the sort of thing our legal system is set up to uh, criminalize because we don't, 
anticipate that the president of the United States is going to be abusing his power in this way and using United States foreign policy to try to further his elective, you know, election goals or uh, something along those lines. It's just it's shocking, but it's not something that you know we criminalize in the way we criminalize shoplifting. And maybe we should, and maybe we should have a whole separate crime related to preventing the peaceful transfer of power, but. You know, it's interesting since January 6th, there have not been, as far as I know, any attempts to add additional laws uh, related to that. And I think um, that's one of the kind of missing pieces or missed opportunities, because I think we haven't yet learned the lessons uh, enough from the Trump era to try to change the law in a way to make it easier to uh, prevent wrongdoing next time. Well, I think the bigger issue is that the criminal law is a very poor fit for trying to hold presidents accountable True. because of the intersection of their vast authority um, and position with, with their behavior. And that's why we have an impeachment process. Um, and I think, uh, unfortunately, that's the escape valve. Um, and I think the challenge in trying to create more laws is how do you design a law that really is intended to apply to one person, you know, where you take into account all of the different aspects. It's not, and our, our criminal code is meant to apply to the average person. Um, right. And that's where the disconnect comes in. 100% true. 100% true. The impeachment is supposed to be that safety valve, but of course we've never had anyone removed from office in the United States history. And um, that may, we may never uh, see that, that happen, at least in our lifetimes. So, Asha, uh, what, I, I will say one thing I really wanted to talk to you about I found so interesting was this New York Times profile on Elizabeth Holmes, the uh, founder of Theranos, who, of course, you know, defrauded investors of, I think, over $140 million and is facing a lengthy prison sentence. It really looked like uh, uh, like a profile you might see in, like, Elle magazine, right, of, like, it, right, it was oh kind of crazy. Oh my god, it was crazy. Yeah, it was like this weird rehabilitative, you know, piece, and you know, Elizabeth is now speaking in a soft, low voice, and she's with her kids, and you know, she just made mistakes and um, just wants to lead a normal life after defrauding lots of people out of millions of dollars and giving out fake health information. I mean, it was kind of insane. I had to stop for a second and make sure I was actually reading a New York Times article. Yeah. I mean, the reason I said Elle Magazine, like they had these beautiful photos of her and her partner, you know, like they're like, they look like they're, you know, whatever, you know, um, taking, uh, you know, as like glamour shots or whatever. Um, and she's got a new name. She's Liz Holmes now. She's not Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, it was all, it was, it was really something. And, and you know, here's, I have a kind of a, 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 a maybe an unusual reaction to it, which is, I think that I actually don't have a problem with publications trying to show the re show readers that criminal defendants are real people and they're and they're complicated you know that the, you know there's that old saying by i think alexander solzhenitsyn that you know if only there was um the you know pure good and pure evil you know it's so easy to just sort of cut out the evil right but the the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every every person right and i think 
everyone who's prosecuted for who's prosecuted of crimes is complicated and they have good aspects about them and they can change and grow and that's just one part of who they are but you know what it really goes to is the selection of the criminal defendant here and it goes to i think broader biases in the way that we cover crime because um a, an attractive white woman upper class white woman is portrayed like oh she gets her you know her uh full full layout of you know her in you know very fancy clothes and she's a new person um but somebody who you know has had a very difficult upbringing in the south side of chicago doesn't get that same expose and victims of crimes you know we're seeing you know uh right now the right wing is attacking a victim of a crime who was murdered uh or why was he murdered that's a strong word but he was killed because it's that's the charges haven't been brought but he's killed on a subway in new york is treated very differently and certainly all there's lots and lots of victims of crimes who are not um who are not talked about um and, and don't receive the level of coverage that uh you know partly i think because of who they are and where they come from yeah in this case i think this has gone over like a lead balloon as far as i can tell yeah but you know what i'm i was still getting notifications from the new york times i got a pop-up on my phone hours and hours after everyone was pillaring them on social media about this I wouldn't be surprised if like, yes, it's going over like a lead balloon and yes, the New York Times is being criticized, but they're getting tons of clicks and views. They're getting clicks on it for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I was, I mean, the Theranos case in particular has been um, a fascinating case for me. I basically, like, I read Bad Blood by John Carreyou. There's an HBO documentary, um, The Dropout. Uh, there was a podcast called The Dropout. There's a Hulu series, I think, also called The Dropout. Um, and I, I mean, her personality to me just seemed like it's just fascinating. Um, and I think it's sort of a really classic narcissistic, you know, personality. And I think that comes through in that piece where she literally accepts no, there's no remorse at all. She blames it all on this dude, um, you know, Sonny Balwani. Oh, he was controlling me. And um, the part where she said, yeah, I made some mistakes. I didn't really know. And, I mean, that is just not true. The document, the HBO documentary is really good because it has actual footage of her and her demeanor. Mm -hmm. And her. she was like a little mini authoritarian, frankly, mm -hmm. um, in, in this company. Uh, to the point where, you know, she was engaging in retaliation against people who were trying to speak out, against whistleblowers. Um, David Boyes does not come out looking really great in this whole story, by the way. I lost a lot of respect for him, um, in that, but yeah. So if you, if you followed the case, I think this New York times piece was a very hard sell. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair to say, but yet, um, it was out there. I mean, partly because of the interest. I mean, one thing that bothers me, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal something to our, our listeners. I, I, I sort of get rankled sometimes by true crime uh, stuff because I've investigated crime for so long and I've been so close to that system. And one thing that I find problematic is like some of the cases that get so much attention, I think is in part because of who the victim is. And, you know, it's like, okay, uh, a, a little white girl is kidnapped. And so we're going to 
get a lot of attention drawn to that. And we're going to have podcasts and movies about that. I used to investigate. I was on a small kidnapping unit that investigated every single kidnapping in the Northern District of Illinois. Um, and I would get up in the middle of the night and I would do all of the work necessary to try to find people before they were murdered or something bad happened to them. And most of the people who were kidnapped were Latino, um, in the, at least in the Northern District of Illinois. Those kidnappings weren't on the front page of the newspaper. I would, you know, people would be kidnapped. Someone's mother, someone's, you know, a brother would get kidnapped. They wouldn't get front page coverage. I wouldn't get called up to do a docu series on HBO. Um, and it, it it just seems to me that it has something to do with who the people are, and I think that yeah, it's very concerning to me. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah. And I think just what captures our imagination. I mean, as as you said, you know, we we definitely hear about missing persons when it's like a attractive sorority girl from the south, and yet you know, there's hundreds of Native American women who go missing um, that you never hear about. And I think um, the media has started to become more aware of that. I think, but I think we're just in this difficult place to go back to the Times article and the clicks where it's a business and they're balancing news where, you know, it's what gets ratings and views and clicks and eyeballs and, you know, stopping on the channel is what becomes newsworthy. Um, and I think that it inherently reflects our own biases as a society. Yeah. And I think it, it impacts how people view the criminal justice system. You know, a lot of the comments and the questions that we get um, from from viewers and from listeners, I think come from a spot of, you know, having certain assumptions about the criminal justice system that come from media. And so I think that it, it can be problematic because those, those are also the biases that jurors are bringing to the table. You know, jurors yeah. now, because of watching too many television shows, think every case has DNA involved in it, for example. <laughs> but having unrealistic expectations about who who the murderers are, who the wrongdoers are, what are real crimes versus not real crimes, who are human beings who deserve to be tr- to be thought of as more complicated than just a defendant versus like somebody who's just a criminal defendant and nothing more. Uh, I think all those things can influence our criminal justice system. And we have to be thoughtful. I think the media has to be really thoughtful for, be, in terms of how they cover this stuff because it really can influence, I think, the guilt and innocence of people uh, over the long run. Well, I can't wait for Elizabeth Holmes to go to jail. Bye, girl. <laughs> yes, it will. It will be. It will be soon. And that. And that. I don't think there was a lot of uh, discussion of that in the New York Times piece. M S W Media. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. 
Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.